This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with former hockey player, now turned sports vision expert, Dr. Zoe Wimshurst. In this two-part episode, she discusses her transition into the industry, why what we see and perceive is so crucial to sporting performance, as well as some of the practical implementation of sport vision training. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, please make sure you share it with friends and family. I hope you enjoy. Right, so Zoe, I know this one's been a little bit, a uh, little bit of time in the making for us, but uh, really excited to have you on. How are things your end? Are you all good? Yeah, I'm really good. Thanks for having me on. I'm really pleased to be here. Perfect. So, for people that don't know you, don't know your work, don't know who you are, can you just, I guess, explain to us a little bit about you? Okay, so my name is Zoe Wimshurst, and I um, have multiple roles. Um, one of them, the most exciting I think is I run a business called Performance Vision so I work with a variety of athletes and coaches as well um, and officials and all sorts of other people but mostly athletes on trying to think about how the way that they collect information in so their perception how they perceive the environment they're in can help them to perform better so The theory is if you can take in more information more quickly or better quality information, you'll have an advantage over your opponents because you're able to react and respond quicker. So that's a big part of what I do. Um, I'm also an academic, so I work at a small institution based in Bournemouth called AECC University College and where I lecture in sports psychology, sports science, those kinds of things. Perfect. You're not too far from me then, only about an hour, an hour north of where I'm based, which is which is good. So, uh, oh, sorry, I'm an hour north of where you're based. Um, so, yeah, I guess the first question for me around that is, um, how did you get into that field? What what drew you to it in the initial stages? So when I was younger, I was, well, I still am a hockey player, but when I was younger, I was actually quite good at hockey, not so much anymore. Um, and I played junior international hockey. And I remember being on one of the England training camps and there was a sports psychologist there by the side of the pitch. And back in those days, this was quite a while ago, um, a sports psychologist was a relatively rare thing to have, particularly at a junior training camp and had a few discussions with the psychologist and thought, well, this is really interesting. I think I could do this job. I thought all they do is sit around and chat to people, watch a bit of sport, sounds ideal. So So I kind of thought I wanted to go into sports psychology. So that's kind of what I did my basic training in. I did an undergraduate degree in psychology. I went on and did my master's in sport and exercise psychology. But while I was doing those um, courses, I realized that actually the more traditional psychology, what most people think of when they think of a psychologist, more the counseling side of things, wasn't really for me. It didn't suit my personality. I particularly back then, wasn't particularly caring. I wasn't really interested in hearing about people's problems. I was all about the performance. I wanted to know what made people play better or not so well. Um, So for my undergraduate degree, I was really fortunate. The university that I was at at the time had just got an eye tracker. um, So where you can monitor where people are actually looking. So for my undergraduate degree, I decided to look at where hockey goalkeepers were looking when they were trying to make saves, if there were differences between elite and novice goalkeepers, if there were differences between 
when they predicted the right direction versus the wrong direction. And this was really, really interesting to me. So that's where I first started thinking about, you know, where you look and the information you're taking in can make a big difference to how you're able to perform. I kind of followed that research through with my master's and then I went on to do my PhD and started to look at instead of just where people are looking, whether we can actually train people's visual systems, their eyes and brain, to work more efficiently, maybe take in more information, um, be able to work in a better way to help the athletes become better at what they're doing. Perfect. So I'm going to start with real basic questions and hopefully we can wrap this up towards the end. But in terms of the academic literature, where and what was the starting point for this type of work? What did they do? Where did they realise that actually this could potentially be a marginal gain that top athletes either have or could develop to have? So there is lots of evidence to show that um, with something called advanced cue utilization. So this is what I was initially looking at with my first study, where people are looking and whether they can use it to predict what's going to happen next. So there's lots of evidence to show that experts are definitely better at this and they tend to look in different places to novices and potentially have different types of strategies with their eyes as well. So experts, not just in sport, but across a whole range of different areas, experts tend to look at fewer areas but for longer periods of time so it seems like they know where to look to take in that information so there's a lot of literature on that to show that that is a fairly stable finding across areas however the training of vision is an area that there is not so much research in so my phd aimed at improving the literature around this area so i looked at i did a couple of different studies looking at training the visual systems either of elite hockey players and i looked at elite cricketers as well um and my research did support the idea that through training the visual system you can improve um visual performance but potentially as well on field performance which has got to be the key like as a coach you don't care if someone's eyes can see 10 places more you care if that's going to translate to on field performance but it's really difficult from a scientific perspective to create a study that stands up scientifically that will show that what you're doing in a laboratory to train vision is going to translate to on the pitch. Because in the applied world, as coaches are going to know, you either want something, if it's going to work, you want all your players to do it. If it's not going to work, then I don't want to work with you. That's not any benefit. So trying to get coaches who are willing to let you have a control group um, so some people who just don't take part in the study at all or do something that you kind of predict isn't going to make a difference, that's really difficult to come across. And also the idea that this is going to be really the only thing that players are doing at that time so that you can put down any changes to the vision training is, again, coaches aren't just going to stop all their other training in the middle of the season or even pre-season and let you just have six weeks just working on vision with their athletes. It doesn't happen in the applied world. So good quality literature to support the training of vision transferring to on-field performance is tricky to come by, but it's getting better. We're starting to get more and more evidence to support the idea that we can improve basic vision and it is going to translate if carried out in the right ways to on-field performance. But it's something I'm really passionate about increasing the literature in the area because I don't want to be seen as someone who's just you know, oh, this sounds good, let's do it anyway. I, I want to make sure that I'm working within the bounds of what science actually can tell us is going to make a big difference. And so when when you spoke about um, the being able to identify cues, 
how does the literature or how did the literature identify what was um i guess skill based in terms of an individual being able to just understand that that's more important for me to focus on and what was um like lack of awareness based in terms of them not being aware that they should be looking at that so i guess the, the question i'm trying to ask is if you've got a, a real elite performer they've probably learned over a lot of training a lot of experience that that's important um so like if i was to come and play hockey i wouldn't know what the cues are because i've got mm -hmm. relatively low experience of hockey whereas yourself you would because you've got more experience have more training how did they decipher the difference between those two things of understanding what the important cues were and that the elite performers were able to pick up on those more so there's a number of different ways of looking at it so to start off with using the eye tracker you can see where people are focused so we could just see the differences between the experts and the novices but as you say that might just have built up over years of experience um one thing i actually did in my undergraduate research paper which hasn't been published um but probably should be done more of similar is that I had an intermediate group as well. So these were hockey goalkeepers who had very similar levels of experience to the elite goalkeepers, but where the elite goalkeepers were all international level players, the intermediates were just club level players. And we could still see big differences between where those intermediates looked and where the experts looked. But there were still differences between the intermediates and the novices as well. So you could kind of see a step change in things. So it wasn't just related to experience within the sport there were definite differences between those who are really successful and those who just you know play the sport socially so that's one thing that can help with the research is including intermediate groups um and then i guess the next step within this oh so another thing that sometimes you can do is instead of using eye tracking or as well as using eye tracking is using computer programs to blank out areas of the body so, for example, if you imagine in football, you're watching someone take a penalty kick, but I've edited the video clips so that you can't see their non-kicking foot. If suddenly your performance at predicting where the ball is going to go gets worse, then we know that looking at that standing leg is important in identifying where the ball is going to go. Because even if the eye tracker would only show if you're looking directly at it, but you might be taking in that information through your periphery. Um, so, again, we can edit video clips to do that. But ideally, we want to be doing stuff in the real world rather than using video clips, which is where at least the eye trackers nowadays, you can wear just like a pair of glasses and enable you, at least in penalty situations, you could wear the eye tracker and still be able to make the save. So there's a number of different ways that we're getting evidence to show it's not just about experience, but related to ability as well. And I think the next stage is looking at being able to train people to utilize those cues to speed up that development to elite level and i appreciate you might not be able to tell us all the cues because i know you did a bit of work but what were some of the common threads across across sport of little signifiers that people would look towards so i think part of it is that novices tend to get distracted more so they'll look in all sorts of different areas they'll spend time looking at the head and the shoulders which don't really give much away in football, we know that a lot of the cues come from the standing leg where that's pointing and the angle that the hips are at as well. In hockey, it's mostly coming from the angle that the stick head is at and the placement of that as well as a little bit to do with the foot positioning as well. So they're some of the key findings that have come out of a, a range of different studies in those fields. 
And then I guess from a practical point of view and looking at terms of people coaching this, would you say that it's worth coaches trying to like signify those areas to their players to say, actually, when you're trying to anticipate where a pass is going, when they're doing this, here are some of the areas that are going to be important for you to realise? Yeah, absolutely. I think that it comes down to obviously what particular task it is you're doing. The penalty has been the most studied. Um, but yeah, you might want to just make suggestions to your players to say, have you thought about where does where's the kicking leg pointing, the foot of the kick of the standing leg, sorry. Which direction is it pointing? Do you think that you get any cues from that? Um, I think it can be used for the attackers as well. If you think, if we know that the direction that your standing leg is pointing is going to give the goalkeeper big cues, you can try and use that for deception as well. So it works both ways. And obviously, like most things, you're going to try and get a one-up on the other team by advanced use of this kind of information. But it's definitely something I would use in my coaching, although I would try and do it in more of a questioning way than you have to look here, because it should be about execution exploration and finding out what works best for certain people yeah I just think it's it's a really interesting idea particularly when you're working with younger players you say to them like look at body shape and Mm -hmm. that's invariably but actually you're right if you say look at body shape and they start looking at their head that isn't actually that useful whereas you go okay where are the hips pointing or where are the foot pointing Mm -hmm. Uh, from a defensive point of view that's a good cue to be able to try and intercept but attacking wise it would then maybe give them even more um, rationale as to why to add the skies to their game, why to try and deceive and why it's important that they practice those types of techniques. I think from an implied perspective, it'd be really interesting if you could, with those younger players, try and, you know, strip feed it in, let them explore it and say, okay, now can you try and disguise? Because you know at the top level that's going to make a difference. Yeah, absolutely. And thinking about maybe you could just take a still image of them at the point of contact when they're taking a penalty and try and go, look, this is you when you're kicking the ball low versus when you're kicking the ball high. Can you see differences in how you're looking left versus right? Can you see differences right? What can you do to try and keep your body shape or your run up um, the same regardless of where the ball is going to go? Because at the end of the day, particularly in something like a penalty, it's more of a mind game than necessarily down to the placement of the kick. So if you're able to deceive and send the goalkeeper the wrong way because of your body position to start off with, it doesn't matter if your kick isn't going absolutely as quick as it possibly could because you've had to slightly shift your body shape. And so, and then trying to process that, I guess, in game where there's a lot more going on, it's slightly more chaotic. Um, obviously, you are looking at different areas of the pitch because you're trying to establish what's going on by the balls compared to, you know, who's behind you and where your teammates are, etc. What I guess, what's the processing speed, processing power for us to be able to take on information visually, process it and then act accordingly? And then how do we begin to implement, I guess, those more structured scenarios of penalty kicks, etc. into live chaotic situations where we're, we can still see Uh, exchanges of information or exchanges of idea in that space yeah so it takes um the eyes about 100 milliseconds to get information into the brain and it's about 200 milliseconds in total before we're able to make any motor output so around 200 milliseconds which is why we are investigating advanced cues so how early can you predict where the ball is going to go because 
we know that physically, if you wait for the ball to be kicked, you're not going to be able to make a save if the ball is going anywhere other than directly at you. So you'll always see that goalkeepers on penalties are moving earlier, even though they're not supposed to, because that's how they have to do it in order to make any attempt at a save. But like you say, in actual match play, it is far more difficult. Um, it's one of the things that lots of people are doing research on at the moment is the idea of scanning and how you get information in. And I think that's something that there's been some really, really great research on, but I think there's still a long way to go to discover the best ways to implement scanning in matches. Um, but that's going to be a big thing moving forwards is where and when people are scanning, what information they're able to take in so that they can have that bigger picture of what's going on, as well as that detailed focus as things are coming closer to them. Yeah, we've had uh, Carl Askham on the podcast before. Who's, he spoke about how he implements scanning and whatnot. Mm. So for anyone who's interested in how they do that, particular football, it'd be worth going and, and have a listen to that. Um, yeah, so I, I guess looking at it in terms of those those practical settings, you mentioned the challenges that you have as a academic going into those spaces and trying to get hold of it what would a best case scenario look like? So if I said to you, listen, here's my intermediate or here's my club team, which has an elite level, intermediate, and novice level. We think that this research is going to be really, really invaluable. Do what you want. What would best practice look like? So ideally for best practice, you would split the group randomly in half at each ability level so that you've got half doing the training that we think is going to make a difference and half doing some other training that, they think is going to make a difference but scientifically we think it's not so they're a placebo control group so they still feel like they're involved in the experiment they still think that they're being experimented on but really it shouldn't make any noticeable difference to their performance then we start to look at how long people would train for so studies have shown that definitely within six weeks you can start to see differences in people's visual ability so you'd be looking at it going for at least that long you'd be looking at um, potentially screening people before and afterwards in both the visual skills, but also you'd want some determinant of in-match play. So it depends which aspects of vision you think you're aiming to improve and how that would translate to on-pitch performance. So for example, if we can improve the number of scans that you can make within a second and increase your peripheral vision, then hopefully that would increase the um, successful pass percentage and potentially more attacking passes rather than safe passes square or backwards. So we'd take some statistics before the training session over a few matches. Um, we'd do the training session. So maybe try and look at integrating into um, as much on the pitch stuff as possible, but possibly some away from the pitch as well, some basic training exercises, integrate that into on pitch stuff. And then at the end of the six weeks, do the testing again, and then you'd look at trying to do retention tests as well. So wait for another few weeks with no training and see if those improvements that hopefully you found have continued to be there after there's been a period of no particular training. So you mentioned about the different areas that you could look to try and improve. What would they be? So there's a whole heap of different things that if I'm just doing a general screening on players that I would look at. So things like how quickly can you move your eyes from close to you to far away to stimulate, you know, you're looking at the ball as it's coming towards you, but you want to be able to scan into the distance. So changing that focus of your eyes would be one thing. Um, looking at how quickly you can do saccadic eye movements. So they're those short, sharp movements that you'd be doing 
which is going to help you scan kind of across the pitch maybe. We'd be looking at depth perception, which would enable you to put the right weight onto passes, peripheral vision to see how much awareness you have to the side of you, things like reaction speed or reacting to particular things. So there's a whole host of different visual capabilities that we would look at trying to improve if we think those visual capabilities are important to your sport because every sport is going to require different things from their athletes so there's no point just going okay you need to improve all of these things because depending on the sport you play and the position within the sport there are going to be more and less important things so then you work out okay so for you as an individual what's going to help your game the most these areas so let's work on those and then once we've improved the core ability, how can we then look at you building that into your performance? Because just because I can improve your peripheral vision, say by 10 degrees, doesn't necessarily mean that you'll use that in a game if you haven't been given the time to actually work out, okay, so I can see a bit wider, but how am I going to utilize that? What benefit does that have to me? So it's about improve the visual capability build it into how you as an individual play in the match, and then hopefully you'd see improvements in on-field performance. I'm trying to uh, focus my brain here, because now as you're talking and giving those examples, I'm trying to dart my eyes around the room. <laughs> to be like, how quickly can I actually do those things? Or how how much peripheral awareness do I have? So I guess looking at it from, um, you mentioned about going short to long distance. Mm-hmm. That'd be a one particularly in football people use in terms of balls coming towards you. You need to be able to focus on where you need your touch to be, but you need to be able to see outlets, et cetera. What would um, a baseline capability for, for that look like? And what would you, if, if you were to improve it, what, what kind of differences would we see maybe? Okay, so... A baseline test for that could be really simple in terms of you hold a really small piece of paper in your hand with kind of letters in, I don't know, 10 or 12 font on there. So quite small in your hand. And then you've got an eye chart on the wall. So again, I say an eye chart, but not one where the letters are getting smaller, just all the letters, the same size on the wall. Um, You stand about three meters away from it and you just read alternate letters off each chart. So you're having to change your focus from near to far continually for a minute or something to see how many letters you can read in that time. Then from there, obviously, I've got a huge database of hundreds and hundreds of elite athletes. So I can compare to say, oh, you're doing pretty well, or oh, that's an area that could definitely use some work. So we do some core tests like that. And then we'd think of various different exercises that would improve that. We try and look and see if there is a reason why you're struggling to change that focus. Sometimes that can be something that an optometrist would be able to help with because um, the, or to do with the eye muscles because changing the focus can be related to that. It's something that naturally gets worse as you get older, the change of focus. So again, we need to take that into account. But once we've trained it and found improvements in it, then in terms of on-pitch performance, what you quite often see is with players and I've had players in football and hockey that do this where they're poor at that near to far they get an idea in their head already of I'm going to pass the ball short when it comes to me and then whatever happens they have to do a short pass because they just lack awareness of what's far away and vice versa they think oh I've seen something far away oh it's not on now but I'm going to keep my gaze far away and you see them quite often trying to force a pass when actually there's a really short one onto them so with improvements in that change of visual focus you see that they're much more able to change their decision making with passing because they have the ability to scan 
and be comfortable switching that focus more. So uh, the next question that leads on to, at times, football coaches, I'll include myself in this, will say uh, that individual is a poor decision maker because they're not seeing what's around them. How much of it do you think it is actually a poor decision maker and how much of it do you think is actually their just inability to see what's going on around them because they don't have these uh, visual skills? Okay, so I, personally, obviously, I think a big part of it is to do with vision and it can be because you, if you're not seeing the options, how can it be a poor decision? Having said that, that's not always the case. So I remember a case I was working with a rugby player who was an international rugby player at the time. And the coaches came to me and said, look, this player just isn't making the simple offload passes. And he claims that he just doesn't see those options. So we need to know, is he really not seeing those options? So we did a range of tests on him. We looked at his peripheral awareness was exceptional. We looked at various other things. It was all really good. And so at the end of the day, I could sit down with him with the data and go, look, why aren't you making those passes? Because the visual information is all showing that you should be able to see them. The tests when you're under stress are all showing that stress shouldn't be causing you to have these issues. Why is it? And actually, once we had the data in front of him, what he actually ended up saying was, well, I'm not making the passes because I back myself more than I back the players around me. So it came down to he genuinely was a poor decision maker. But because we had the information, we could go to him and talk to him in that way. Whereas if you don't know, and more often than not, it is because someone's just not able to see those options. And there are lots of different things that poor visual ability manifests itself in on-field scenarios. So people talk about players being in the right place at the right time. That's because they've got good vision and can read the game and are able to move themselves into the right places. Poor concentration a lot of the time in younger athletes or poor balance or inconsistent movements a lot of that can be down to difficulties with their visual system. Um, if you work with younger athletes, particularly maybe when they're suddenly studying a lot of the time, so their focus is focused in on computer screens really quite close to where they are, their gaze will get fixed at that distance that they're at. And then you immediately put them out on the pitch and expect them to perform well. Well, they've just been sat in front of a computer for hours. So it's going to take a while for their visual system to be able to warm back up into being able to change that focus. And we kind of forget that and we'll just judge people and going, oh, all of a sudden they're not performing so well, when actually it could just be because of what they're having to do outside of the sport is affecting their visual ability or they've just not worked on the vision to be able to get that kind of um, ability in the first place and improving vision can show lots of improvements in things other than just visual ability. Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.